0: This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide issue that affects you. I'm Jake Neer.
1: And I'm Shayna Roth. As we've discussed on Mishmash recently, Michigan would revert to one of the strictest anti-abortion laws in the country if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, which all signs are pointing that it's very likely to do. Michigan's law, which dates all the way back to 1846, makes it a felony to carry out an abortion except when it's necessary to save the life of the mother.
0: That Supreme Court decision on the future of Roe is expected in the next couple of months, but leaders in states like Michigan aren't waiting around. The assumption, in many places, is that it'll be up to individual states to decide whether women have legal access to abortion services in a post-Roe world, And now abortion rights supporters here in Michigan are showing that they're ready to fight.
2: We're going
1: straight to the Michigan Supreme Court to ask that they acknowledge women have uh, the right to privacy, the right to bodily autonomy under our uh, due process clause and our equal protection clause of the Michigan Constitution. So no matter how muddled
0: Roe gets at the national level, Michigan women will have those rights going forward.
1: That's the voice of Governor Gretchen Whitmer on MSNBC just hours after filing a lawsuit in the Oakland Circuit Court. Now, as you heard in that clip, she's asking the Michigan Supreme Court to answer the questions that she poses in the case. That would bypass lower courts in this attempt to establish a state right to abortion here in Michigan. Essentially, she's saying Michigan Supreme Court, make this state an abortion safe zone.
0: But that's not the only effort here to make sure that women have access to abortion services even if Roe is overturned. The same day that Governor Whitmer announced her lawsuit, Planned Parenthood of Michigan and the ACLU of Michigan filed their own lawsuit to block enforcement of the state's abortion ban if it once again takes effect. And that's really interesting because they named the Michigan Department of Attorney General as the defendant In that case, of course, Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel is a Democrat who strongly supports abortion rights. She's announced that she's refusing to defend the state's abortion ban in that case. And that means the state legislature might have to end up intervening as sort of a de facto defendant instead.
1: And as if that wasn't enough, hold on tight, there's more. There is also a petition campaign gathering signatures to enshrine abortion rights in Michigan's Constitution. The group Reproductive Freedom for All would need to collect more than 425,000 signatures to get its question on the November ballot. If that happens and voters approve it, that puts an explicit right to abortion in the state constitution. Constitution, but abortion opponents are using this to criticize Governor Whitmer's lawsuit. They question why the governor is claiming the state constitution already protects abortion rights while this group tries to change the constitution to legalize abortion. I apologize if I just gave you a headache.
0: (laughs) There's also legislation at the state capitol that would simply get rid of the old abortion ban that's currently on the books. It would just go away under legislation sponsored by Democratic State Senator Erica Geis of Taylor But you can probably guess how far that's likely to go in a Senate chamber dominated by Republicans.
1: So basically, whether or not any of these efforts are successful, we're still probably a long way from knowing what life after Roe looks like in Michigan. Michigan. So, Jake, we typically use this part of the podcast to continue the conversation. But this week, you had a chance to talk with U.S. Senator Gary Peters about some of the really big things happening in Washington right now and how those affect All of us here in Michigan.
0: That's right. So I got a chance to catch up with Senator Peters right before he headed over to the White House to see the president sign his bill to reform the U.S. Postal Service into law. We also got the chance to talk about his vote to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court as the first black woman to serve in that role. This happened before he uh, actually cast that vote and before that vote happened. We also got a chance to talk a bit about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how the U.S. should respond to really horrifying evidence of mass killings of civilians there.
1: All right. Let's listen to that conversation.
0: Senator Gary Peters, thank you for taking the time today.
2: Oh, great to be with you, Jake.
0: So I want uh, – there's a number of things that I'd love to talk to you about, but I want to start with the upcoming confirmation vote for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, we are talking on Wednesday afternoon, so the vote hasn't happened yet, but we are expecting it uh, sometime soon. Uh, I'm curious what you are thinking uh, as we approach that vote about, um, you know, sort of the process so far and the, this moment in history.
2: Well, there's no question uh, this is a, um, a major historical event. I'm very excited uh, to be a part of it, but I'm just so excited to be able to, uh, to vote for uh, Judge Jackson. She is uh, an incredible uh, person. Uh, she has uh, distinguished uh, legal career to this point uh, in her judicial role. She has always been viewed as probably one of the most impartial judges uh, serving on the, on the bench. I had an opportunity to meet with her one-on-one last week uh, and came uh, away uh, even more convinced that she has uh, the experience and the temperament uh, to be a Supreme Court justice. So I think we are very fortunate to have an opportunity to to, uh, confirm a a nominee with her character. I certainly was disappointed, though, through the process. You know, I saw some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, engage in in uh, false attacks, personal attacks, some really nasty stuff uh, that uh, certainly I believed were beneath uh, the, the uh, U.S. senator and the questions uh, that were asked of her. But, but all through that, uh, what she did is she just proved uh, herself to be an extraordinary individual, her, her temperament in dealing with some of the questions that were thrown at her that I thought were off-base and, uh, and inappropriate. Uh, she handled with grace, uh, dignity, and an incredible amount of professionalism. She's, she's just going to be an outstanding Supreme Court justice.
0: And I'm curious if you're willing to reflect even more on this environment that this has all exposed. I mean, I think we all know how partisan Congress and the Senate is right now. However, you know, I think I saw recently that when Judge or Justice Antonine Scalia was confirmed— I believe the vote was something like 98 to 0 at the time. I mean, it seems like it's a relatively recent phenomenon in American history that these kinds of appointments of, you know, of judges that legal scholars unanimously agree are qualified for the Supreme Court uh, are being, you know, that that there is immense opposition to their nominations. What does that mean to you about the kind of climate we're dealing with?
2: well it, it's terrible uh, because you're right uh, our previous justices including her predecessor i think got close to 90 votes when he was confirmed so uh, we uh, would come together and understand that the, the supreme court uh, is a place where people who are qualified uh, highly qualified and and are, are willing to to uh, uh, conduct their duties in an impartial and fair manner that should be the the standard and and coming together in a bipartisan way to confirm individuals like that uh, builds the kind of credibility that the Supreme Court needs. When, when you think about our, the framers uh, to our country, the founders, uh, they, they, they certainly knew uh, that the Congress uh, would always be a highly partisan body with the vigorous partisan debate. Uh, you'd expect that of the president uh, as well but they also knew that for a democracy to function there had to be folks who were neutral arbiters uh, with uh, what were going to be very vigorous debates and the place where that was was the third branch of government the supreme court where people would have confidence that the supreme court would objectively look uh, at uh, issues related to a case and then rule based uh, on uh, on a fair and just reading of the law and what we've seen uh, is now, unfortunately, the hyper-partisanship uh, involved uh, in Supreme Court justices. We, we have some Supreme Court justices now, when they speak publicly, uh, have to tell people that they're not partisan. When you have to start telling people you're not partisan when you're on the Supreme Court, you have a problem. You, when you have to start saying that, that, you realize that you're starting to lose credibility with the American public. And that's, uh, that's the, the number one tool the Supreme Court has, is their their credibility. So this, we're in a dangerous time for the court, which is why I think Judge Jackson's uh, nomination was so important, because of her view, the general view that she was impartial, the fact that she has support from legal scholars on both sides of the political spectrum, appointees of Republican presidents in the judicial area have, have spoke to her qualifications uh, and her temperament. Uh, I uh, hope we get some Republican votes for her. We already have a number who have said they will vote for her. And when the final vote is taken, I would certainly hope uh, that she would get broader uh, uh, broader bipartisan support. But uh, it is this is a challenging time for our country and a challenging time for the Supreme Court without question.
0: Moving on to something else here, of course, you serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee and you chair the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. I want to ask you about the recent news that we're hearing out of Ukraine. It uh, seems like overwhelming evidence of atrocities against Ukrainian civilians on the part of Russia, uh, although Russia is trying to deny that, although it seems like the rest of the world is is saying that the evidence, again, is overwhelming. What are your thoughts about that and what the U.S. response should be?
2: Well, so there's, there's uh, no question uh, there's overwhelming uh, evidence uh, that the Russians have been acting in a, in a brutal uh, way. Uh, there have definitely been war crimes uh, committed. And without question, uh, Mr. Putin uh, and others who are engaged in those war crimes uh, need to be uh, brought to, to justice. The fact that Putin uh, launched this invasion to begin with uh, against a, a country, a peaceful country, And to engage in this uh, illegal invasion and what is basically murdering uh, innocent uh, civilians is uh, simply uh, outrageous, uh, must be condemned, and folks need to be brought to to justice. So uh, we will continue to pursue it. I know the president has put uh, even further sanctions uh, uh, on uh, both Russian uh, citizens as well as uh, strengthening some sanctions on, on major banks. Uh, we've got to do everything we can to try to bring this war to a conclusion. Uh, but uh, there certainly needs to be accountability when this is over, without question.
0: And when you talk about bringing to justice and accountability, what does that actually look like when we're talking about something like war crimes?
2: Well, certainly uh, as a war criminal, uh, the international community can take actions. And, and I think that you know right now with what we're seeing uh, from uh, the Russians uh, is that there's, there's no there, – I, I, it's going to be tough to find a path in the near term where they can be part of the international community. This is irreputable damage to—Mr. Putin is, is uh, basically subjecting his country to irreparable damage that will take decades to recover from.
0: I want to talk about some big news of the day. This is uh, many years in the making. Uh, You are the lead sponsor on legislation that would overhaul, in many ways, the U.S. Postal Service. Again, we're talking uh, right now, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. I know you're heading to the White House right after this for the bill signing, but – for people who don't know, I mean, you know, this is a this is a major piece of legislation that affects every single American that gets mail. But we haven't heard a whole lot in the media about it. So so for people who don't know, what would it do and why is it significant?
2: Well, it, uh, you're right. It's uh, very, very pleased uh, that President Biden will be signing uh, this legislation uh, into law. And, and actually, uh, this uh, this reform package and ideas in this reform package have been in the works for roughly 15 years, 15 years Uh, with nothing uh, happening uh, as it should. Uh, I uh, really took up uh, this cause as the the due chair of uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs, which has oversight of the Postal Service. I've been working on it for a little over a year, close to two years, and now it's getting signed into law, which will put the Postal Service on much more stable financial footing. And, And that's critically important for the Postal Service to continue to to uh, do their critical mission, which is to deliver mail to every single address in America. They're the only entity that does that. Uh, And uh, it is important for them to have the financial resources to continue to do that and to do it in an efficient way, in a timely way. But they were saddled with some very onerous requirements. One of those requirements was to pre-fund all retiree health care for all of their employees, regardless of their age, even ones coming in in their 20s. And I want to be clear, there's no company in America that's required to do that. There's no other government agency that's required to do that. No one does that. It's a huge uh, financial burden that was just put on the Postal Service. Uh, We also made uh, reforms such as allowing retirees to be integrated into Medicare when they retire, just like every company in America does, just like the federal government does. Uh, and it's important to remember, postal employees have been paying into Medicare their entire career, uh, and now they can be integrated into into Medicare. Uh, just those uh, two, two uh, areas alone uh, will save the Postal Service over the next 10 years roughly $49 billion. That's money that can be put into efficient delivery of mail for for customers. We've also put in some performance measures. We want to make sure the Postal Service continues to deliver mail six days a week, which is uh, critically important for many customers of mail service, especially those who get prescription drugs in the mail that need to have that delivery uh, in a timely way. And we've also put in performance metrics. Right now, the Postal Service, with this legislation being signed into law, will post uh, online uh, their on-time delivery uh, standards or their act- the actual on-time delivery that they've experienced over the the last week uh, in every zip code in america so as a postal customer you can see uh, if your mail is being delivered on time and what percentage by your zip code it's going to be updated every single week uh, they're going to be able to better uh, have a better handle on how quickly mail is being delivered And if there are problems in certain areas, make sure that uh, those uh, problems are being corrected. But it will create the kind of transparency that uh, certainly customers uh, expect uh, from a, uh, a modern, uh, a modern business entity or an entity like the Postal Service, although it's not a business, it's a service. Uh, we want to make sure that they provide that service as efficiently as possible.
0: And I know you got to get going, uh, but really quick, I'm ter- I'm curious about specific impacts here in Michigan. Um, you know, I've, I'm a lifelong Michigander, but I did live in a state, uh, Alaska, which is, has an outsized impact on how much they depend on the Postal Service. But what about Michigan? What What are uh, some of the big implications here?
2: well it is it 's the same in Michigan. you mentioned Alaska. It is particularly important uh, to rural areas. Rural areas rely on the postal service uh, every day, just like all of us who all of us who may live in suburban and urban areas. but as I mentioned you 've got to have medications that are going through the mail. you expect that to be timely. paychecks uh, bills uh, if you 're a small business, so the postal service allows you to engage in online commerce and and be able to ship your products uh, to customers. It's absolutely essential to everyone, but rural areas in particular, and clearly Michigan is also a very rural state. When you get into Northern Michigan or the Upper Peninsula, uh, you will find folks who live in those areas uh, uh, understand how important the postal service is to their daily life. And with these reforms, uh, the postal service will be able to do their job much uh, more efficiently and better. Uh, without being saddled with these onerous requirements that no other entity was saddled with. It was simply uh, uh, unacceptable that the Postal Service had to do things that no one else had to do. This will make life better for our postal workers uh, and the customers they serve.
0: Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from Michigan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, Great to be with you, Jake. Have a wonderful day. You too.
1: And that's all for MishMash.
0: I'm Shayna Roth. And I'm Jake Neer. Thanks for listening.